Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our series on food, agriculture, the environment, and our future. Right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. In the second half of the program, we'll be talking with students and teachers at Douglas High School in Baltimore about their urban farming project. But first... Well, you've heard what we're going to be describing and talking about in just a minute. We're here with James Nestor, who's an author and a journalist in numerous magazines outside many of the magazines, author of Deep, Freediving Renegade Science and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. His work was featured in the New York Times op-ed docs and the Annapurna Pictures virtual reality film, The Click Effect. And uh, that's where I discovered all this was in the New York Times piece uh, that he wrote a conversation with whales that came out on April 16th. And James Nestor, welcome. Good to have you on the program. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. So this is what really caught me about the article was, um, A, my own fascination with the mammals of the sea um, and their world. Uh, and But but really what you're trying to – what you're talking about here, which is diving, swimming with, learning from, listening to – one of the largest living beings on Earth, the sperm whale. Yeah, that's right. And um, the, the problem is these animals are really hard to study. You can't do it with scuba. You can't do it with submarines. It's really hard to do it with boats. But that's why people free dive when they uh, study or this, the select group um, has learned how to free dive with them. Um, it's very uh, welcoming to them to be down there, be completely silent and to be going up to the surface and grabbing a breath and coming back down exactly the way they do. So let's take a couple steps backwards here. So first sure. of all, sperm whales are like been in the, in, in, the, in the human consciousness for a long time, whether it's people who dwelled by the sea and in, in many ancient and, and earth cultures who understand whales, whether it, um, from the, the Arctic throughout, throughout any nation kind of lived by the, by the water. And then in our own Western world, Moby Dick, uh, that brought this kind of gigantic whale to the to the to the minds of the Western world. But did, I mean, so talk a bit about the sperm whale first. Well, sperm whales. I mean, as far as we know, they've been in their current form for around fifty million years. And what uh, Western cultures know of them is their oil. Um, we only know them from from hunting them, or we have uh, you know until around forty years ago when scientists started investigating them. Um, their oil was used uh, for everything for street lamps, for uh, brake fluid, for cosmetics. If you have a tennis racket uh, that was built that's good quality before nineteen sixty um, those strings were made with the sinew of sperm whales. Hmm. Um, so we, we hunted these animals to the, the verge of extinction. Uh, we, we got rid of around 80% of them uh, over the co- course of around 100 years. Their population was probably at around uh, 1.3 million for millions and millions of years. Um, and then we did a really good job of uh, almost exterminating them from the planet. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, the Save the Whale movement came around and showed people that these weren't just big, dumb fish, angry, angry brutes. Um, you know, they, they had enormous brains and they had very uh, complex cultures that they lived in. And uh, so just now, just recently, um, we're starting to get to understand these animals as, as something more than, than meat and, and mechanical oil. And when you say large, I mean, as you wrote in your piece, sperm whales are you wrote the largest predator, predators on the planet. I mean, eight-inch-long teeth, as you write, 60 feet long, 110,000 pounds. They're huge. Yeah, they're pretty big. The, <laughs> um, you know, the the next largest animal, uh, there's some whales, humpbacks can get pretty big, but is is the blue whale. But uh, the blue whale doesn't have teeth. Right, so right. You, you're, you're talking about a, an extremely badass apex predator of the ocean. <laughs> um, the, these animals are, you know, you, you can see old illustrations from sailors of sperm whales chomping into boats, eating people, all that kind of stuff. So, and was that true? Is that true? 
<laughs> well, uh, I think some of it is, uh, you know, uh, when you're being hunted, sometimes uh, you got to turn around and defend yourself. Um, uh, you know, many times um, there were reports. Uh, Moby Dick is based on a true story, actually, in the heart of the sea. There was a movie made about it about a year and a half ago, came out and, right. and a great nonfiction book. So um, those guys were, were hunted by a whale. Uh, the whale came up, they, they harpooned it, they tried to kill its family. I think they, they killed a, a few of its um, spawn and uh, turned around and, and got him. So, uh, you know, uh, but I, I do know that when you approach these animals in peace, it's a completely different situation. They're not known for hunting humans or killing humans unless they themselves are hunted. But that's all they've known, you know, until very recently is being stalked down by um, hunters and, and butchered. Before we get into the heart of the work that really is kind of groundbreaking and, and very controversial that you all did and the scientists you're working with, um, I just this question, so for as, I mean, when you, you learn to free dive, um, as I said before, we went in the air, is one of the things I've always been fascinated with but terrified of, the idea of it. Um, but you, you can describe that in a moment. But I'm curious what it was emotionally and physically like to swim next and by and around and be swum around? You know, it's it's pretty hard to describe. There's a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions that get stirred up. You see this animal in the ocean approaching. It's as big as a school bus. And uh, you see it breathing out these huge plumes of steam and mist. And uh, you hear it clicking. In the water, you can hear animals it. are the yeah they're the second loudest animals on the planet. And um, as it gets closer and closer to you, then you get in the water. The boat leaves. It's you and this sixty foot long whale with eight inch long teeth. Uh, and you know this animal at any time could destroy you. It could smack you with its fin. It could chomp you. It could swallow you without ever uh, thinking about it. And so you just have to sort of give up control and trust the moment and trust that it's not going to do to you what humans have done to it and its kin for, you know, hundreds of years. So, uh, you, you know, the, the experience is, <laughs> there, there's a lot of, um, you know, depictions, paintings of people swimming peacefully with dolphins and other cetaceans, but when this thing approaches, it's like <laughs> an underwater train and uh, you hear it clicking um, and it's so loud that it vibrates your body, you literally feel your head vibrating, your body vibrating um, as it approaches. So you have no control. You have to give up control. And um, you just sort of put yourself out there and hope for the best. And um, the experiences that I've had, they've approached in complete peace, stayed there for minutes at a time, checked us out, welcomed us into their pods. And um, this isn't something a vicious stupid fish would do i mean these animals are are conscious they they realize there's something greater going on here and uh it's pretty transformative and one of the reasons we've not been able to get close to sperm whales and the, and these animals to study them is because we've done it by ship because they're so huge and to talk a bit about that i mean the difference between what people have tried to do wearing scuba deer and and whether it's whether small submarines as opposed to what you did which you can describe free diving as the only way to really get close Mm -hmm. Well, the first time we ever saw these animals underwater uh, was in the very late 70s. Um, no one had ever bothered to dive with them. We had managed to find great way, ways of, of harvesting their flesh, of killing them. Um, then a guy, cameraman, got in the water and, and dove with them and said, my God, these are extremely gentle animals. Uh, they're completely different than everything that historic accounts have told us. So um, people tried to scuba dive with them, but uh, their hearing is so sensitive. That's how they're able to view their underwater environment is through this form of sonar. Um, that scuba really disrupts them. And they see all this extra equipment. They get freaked out and they leave. Boats, um, sometimes you can get close to them in a boat, but you can't see what's going on beneath the surface. So you only see their backs. Um, so these guys I met on a, on a one-off magazine assignment about four years ago had found that if they went free diving with them, which is taking a single breath of air and just using your natural body to dive deep in the ocean, that they were able to not only get close 
to these whales and other oceanic animals, but these animals actually took them into their world, essentially into their pods, started sending them communication clicks, wanted to know more about them. I know that sounds like some new age dream, but, uh, you know, they've got 40 <laughs> hours of video footage to prove it. And that's what, uh, the click effect was based on some of their footage. So, but so you, you, you met the reason you're doing this I mean, you're not a scientist yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? No, no, I'm not. I've been a, a science journalist right. for a number of years, so not a scientist myself. But you met this this man, uh, this person, Fabrice Schnoller? Yes, that's that's and, correct. I was uh, on assignment in Reunion Island, which is in the middle of nowhere, off the coast of Madagascar, a little French outpost out there. And this guy very casually um, said... Uh, you know, oh, come come to my house. I'll show you some pictures of whales. And I was like, huh, whatever. Okay. Um, you know, he was a nice guy. We we're going to go have a couple couple beers. And then <laughs> I, yet, yet did I know he had the largest collection of human-whale interactions on the planet. This guy working out of his garage. And he just did this because he had had an experience with these animals six years previous. Uh, he was an engineer, electrical engineer, brilliant guy who... Um, randomly got in the water with sperm whales and had his body clicked, had that whole experience for about four hours. And then um, everything changed for him. He said, I know these animals are communicating. I'm going to figure it out. So that's what, you know, that's how my, my life uh, as a normal, uh, you know, journalist <laughs> sort of changed at that moment. I ended up writing a book there in a, a few of the chapters of the book deep. Um, but I ended up joining their team because I saw what they were doing. Um, I saw they're collecting no money to do this. This is all volunteer run. And I truly believe that these are the guys that are going to make the breakthrough. So. And the breakthrough being, the, 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 so you, because you're free diving, there's no noise around you other than the noises of the ocean depth itself and the whales. Um, you're able to shoot and record pure sound in the time you're down there uh, without the whales fleeing. That's that's right. This is the only way of recording whale behavior and whale vocalizations up close um, is to free dive with them. Scuba's too loud. Boats can't access the whale pods. But when you free dive, you're completely silent. Not only that, but again, you're welcomed into the pods of whales. So they're able to get footage and communication recordings that no one else on the planet can get. And that's what's so exciting about it. And and so with all of this data, they are now working on cracking the sperm whale communication code. We know these animals are communicating. We've known they're they've been communicating for, you know, probably millions of years. That's that's scientifically proven that they're communicating. We just don't know what they're saying. So that's what these guys are trying to figure out. So what so what's really groundbreaking here and very controversial we can talk about in a moment. Mm-hmm. Is is what Schroeder and his team are trying to prove, are trying to show when they take these what seemingly similar uh, clicks, coda clicks, and and the tapings they're doing of the sperm whales interacting, is you're actually working on the idea that there's a language happening here. There's a communication beyond what human beings can understand. That's that's absolutely right. And uh, again, that's not the part that's too controversial here. Uh, it's it's mostly the methods that right. they're using to collect this information. When you look at a sperm whale click, one of these coda clicks, they can replicate these frequencies, the exact same frequency over and over again to the microsecond and the millisecond. That's a thousandth of a second. These are not random bursts. Um, they replicate these things. They can move distinct frequencies around in a thousandth of a second back and forth again. They can add new elements. They, um, you know, we found that whales use signature clicks that are that calculated. Um, so the, these animals, obviously, like this isn't a dog barking, Schnoller keeps saying. And uh, anyone can see this on a <laughs> spectrogram readout. Uh, again, that's, that's not so much the controversial part. Uh, the controversial part is that they are trying to collect these clicks and to shoot them back to the animals. Um, and if we find that these animals are able to construct these clicks, these thousandth of a uh, second long clicks, and construct them and to shoot them back to us, then 
they're obviously using this as some form of communication. I hope that's clear. This stuff gets extremely complicated. But, so so um, how does that work so far? I mean, in the experiments, can you talk a bit about yeah. what, what you think you may have discovered, what you might be discovering? Well, right now they're just collecting clicks. Okay. Getting the clearest possible audio of the clicks. They're uh, trying to get, you know, this guy has spent like tens of thousands of dollars of his own money to do this. So we're trying to get a partner. We don't need a lot of cash, but enough to build this initial instrument. Um, now, if this gets too complicated, just just shut me off here. But, no, uh, go, go. Um, <laughs> sperm whales use, use echolocation, which is a form of sonar. So they shoot out a click from their mouths. It's that same click that vibrates your body when you're in the water. And they wait for the echo of that click to come back. And they use that information to form a picture of everything around them. So in order to properly capture one of those clicks and to send one of those clicks back to the animals, you don't just need one microphone. You don't need two microphones. You need many microphones over a large panel. Um, because sound doesn't travel in a straight line. It travels as a mist. It goes in all directions. So to capture as much of that click, you need as large of a panel and as many microphones as possible. I hope that makes it's It's like pixels on yeah. a computer. Like, like, you know, you can have a 10 pixel image and you can maybe see uh, a circle in that. If you have a 200 pixel image, the resolution gets so much better. So that is what they are trying to do. Find a, a still, it's still going to be low resolution, but enough to be able to capture the true source of this, this audio communication and then to send that back to the animals in a way that they'd be able to, to understand it. So how does the way you tape the sounds of the sperm whales or relate to or does it relate to the, 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 the intelligence of the animal and the, and the, and the ner- nervous system and the brain, brain structure of the animal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, sperm whales have a brain that's about six times larger than our own. They have a neocortex, which in humans is known to govern things um, like higher higher level thinking, um, planning, self-awareness, stuff like that. Compassion, speech. Compassion, speech, exactly. They also have spindle cells, which are highly developed brain structures that uh, are thought to separate humans from great apes. They make humans human. They um, govern things like love and suffering and also language. Now, sperm whales have not only spindle cells, but a neocortex and a brain size that is so much larger than our own. So they have all of the brain structures associated with communication. And they have, uh, and again, they're many times the size of ours. So we know when they're sending out these clicks, these coda clicks, these aren't the clicks that are used for echolocation. These are communication clicks that are used only for communication. So uh, we know that. This is scientifically proven stuff. So we're going to capture those with one of these large speakers to get as much information as possible and send that back to them. And if they can replicate the clicks that we send back, then obviously they have the power to do this. And we will first be able to prove that the animals are using clicks for communication, which will be a huge thing. This is a completely new form of communication, unknown to science before. And then we can start trying to communicate with them. So it's a one-two punch there. So uh, let me give us a little bit of context here. I'm going to come back to the research. Sure. But I think that um, the, 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 the folks you work with, their, their website, Dare Win, right? That's right, yes. Um, that I've been looking at. So you, so you have sperm whales that... Um, as they point out here, are uh, had developed 15 million years before Homo sapien hit came 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 into being. 15 million years. Yep. Right. Yep. So, so then they've been living beneath the surface for a long time. So, um, one of the things they seem to be positing here or trying to question is: Are sperm whales could could sperm whales be? The most intelligent animals on earth, animals on Earth. They seem to make the argument: you know, we spend all this money going uh, out beyond our own atmosphere to see if there's intelligent life on other planets. Argument is that they, we may have intelligent life right among us. We don't even understand. Yes, and and you won't find a neurologist alive right now who won't tell you this. 
this animal is not extremely intelligent. And that to me is the irony. I mean, you know, they're spending SETI's and SETI's great, uh, but they're spending a hundred million dollars looking for signs of intelligent life in the universe. And there's intelligent life here. It's communicating It's below the surface. So it seems like a better bet to try to put some resources and some energy into studying the own, our own intelligent life here on this planet. And um, again, like these, these animals, we don't know exactly how advanced we can only gauge from their brain size and their behaviors. And from their brain size, if we're just looking at that, these animals are, are, could be far more intelligent than, than we are, especially with their, the more advanced areas of the brain. Um, and culturally, they're more similar to humans than any other animal on the planet. They uh, raise um, their youth in little nursery schools. Um, they, ha they have first names and last names. They have dialects that they exchange when they meet one another. This, all of this stuff is proven. We just need to take it to the next step before these animals are gone from the planet. And that's what these guys are trying to do is to learn about them, to try to save them before they're all gone. So where, in, in terms of the, uh, uh, in terms of the, the work these, these men are doing, the scientific work the men are doing with trying to decode and understand the language of sperm whales and speak back to them, where are they? I mean, how, how close are they to the point where they can go back into the water to see if they can have a conversation? <laughs> well, I mean, that depends on a lot of things. You know, if we keep going at, at the rate that we're going right now, by which I should say is just funding all of our own research. You know, hydrophones are really expensive. So it takes us a while to like all work our real jobs and to um, put this stuff together. If we're able to get someone a little bit of cash from someone who's who wants to push this project forward and is willing to take that that risk then it can happen very quickly all the schematics are built um the blueprint is there uh he's had this for a couple of years again this is an electrical engineer he's he's approaching this not in the way of a, of a linguist but this is a coding problem it's an engineering problem and um, that's how he's approaching it. And that's how he, he hopes to, to prove it. So it could happen. We could be in the water with these animals in the next eight months if, uh, if everything came together in the right way. Um, first thing we have to do is to scientifically prove that they're communicating with these clicks. Every scientist will, will tell you they are. There's some form of communication there. Um, and then we, we're going to try to exchange clicks with them. If, if they can replicate these extremely complex clicks that we're going to feed to them, then we can start incorporating uh, pictures into that and, and manipulating it with that. So that's why we're, we're hoping to build a robot um, that's capable of machine learning and get machine learning and AI in on understanding this because um, we can't do it on ourselves. Uh, we're going to need some computers to help out. The robot not going in the water, but being in the lab where you're going to work on the language. We would we would take <laughs> this gets very <laughs> science fiction here. We would take a a mobile um, aquatic robot down with us to record everything, and if we could get it, um, uh, if we get could get a tether back to a boat, we would be able to process the clicks and send them back in real time. So the animals would click to us, the machine would process that, send the same clicks slightly manipulated back to them, um, and go back and forth like that. This might be a mundane question, but how would that, from what we talked about in the very beginning, how would that not scare the sperm whales yeah. as other devices have in the past? Well, uh, for one, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be a foreign sound to them uh -huh. sending back their own clicks. Um, will it scare them? Will they get pissed off and chomp us? Uh, well, that's... <laughs> Part of the problem with doing this, and that's probably why, you know, no one else has really attempted to do it. But having seen all of our interactions uh, with these animals, and these guys have been diving with them for years and years and years, dozens and dozens of times, you know, you start off soft and then you just build it up. Um, I think once they get to know us, we probably have to go out on a boat for a couple of weeks, get to really know the pod, have them interact with us, and then slowly introduce these things to them and, and see what happens. So is there a specific pod or group of sperm whales or family that you're actually 
working with, swimming with that you know is those, are the same whales? Um, I know that Schnoller recognizes the same whales when he goes out to Mauritius. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's still 300,000 of these animals. Um, so they're cruising around all the time. Uh, there are supposed to be some resident populations in Alaska and in Oman. And we thought about <laughs> setting up an expedition to Oman where these animals are supposed to live year round, but pretty sketchy out there. And uh, <laughs> it was just like logistically between that and sending out some vocalizations to spur the whole thing got my wife was just like no no you're not going there had had to remove one of those things from the equation so so uh we'll do it in more more civilized territory in uh dominica in the caribbean um uh there's there's some amazing spots to dive with with whales and interact with them so the interesting, and just a bit of the science collaboration here before we come back to sperm whales and, and, and conclude, you're working with with, uh, with people who are, who are working in bioacoustics, but also in people who are working um, in speech patterns, as, as Hervé Glotin and some others that you're working with are actually so not understand, we're working this from the perspective of people understand the human speech and how it moves, right? Yes, yes, that's right. But... This is, again, is a completely, it's a different type of communication. Our language is based on phonemes, uh, different sounds. But this language, it appears, is, is more digital. Um, you know, it's distinct frequencies replicated in a certain way. Um, so uh, as far as pattern recognition, that's the best thing to be looking at. Pattern recognition, and that's why I, I think... Um, uh, bioacoustics and machine learning is going to be able to crack this. These guys have specifically not uh, tried to work with, with linguists, but more focused on having physicists and, um, and acoustic scientists uh-huh. and, and, and pattern recognition people working with them. Because that's the problem here. It's not a, it's not a similar human, human language problem you know, based on phonemes. It's a completely different thing based on patterns and frequencies. If this research reaches the, the, the level it wants to reach and can actually begin to have a conversation with a pod of sperm whales or several sperm whales, uh, what's, what, what would be the significance? I mean, what, why, you know, what would that breakthrough mean? Yeah. Not just for science, but for all of us. Well, I mean, uh, I, first of all, just proving that these animals are communicating through these these clicks would be a very huge scientific discovery, and that can happen. I believe we can do that within a year, you know, with if if we can get everything in order. Um, as, as far as when we say conversation, I should really distinguish this from like a conversation like wh- how what we're having right now. This is most likely isn't going to be based on words and letters. Uh, it's going to be based on images because these animals already view their environment through images, through sonar. So it would be a sort of visual dialogue in the same way, you know, an ancient sailor showing up in an island might draw a, the planet, might show where he lived and might draw trees and different things from his place. Um, that's the ultimate goal is to have sort of a visual dialogue. You know, we could, we could send them a picture of, again, we know they're viewing their environment through these sonographic pictures. So we could send them a picture of ourselves. Um, They could maybe send one back of, of, of themselves. Uh, Who knows what's Mm going to happen. I think just establish if they're able to see that, like, my God, okay, we've established this contact, we can understand the rudiments of their communication. I think things are going to open up pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and, and that would be, uh, to me, that would just, it would not only save them from uh, being annihilated, but it would also really expand our, our view of life on earth and, and the universe. So to me, there, there would be nothing cooler and nothing bigger and more important to do. Uh, than to get people off of Facebook and and to start looking around and, and under, <laughs> understand that there's you know different consciousnesses uh, right. on this planet right 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 exactly um, and clearly this is something that has that has really consumed you because as a science writer you cover lots of things and have I've seen your other writings um, yeah <laughs> this... yeah I'm I'm kind of screwed the second I'm <laughs> just like ah. 
Well, so much for that. Now, I, I work on, I have a, you know, a real job. I work on a ton of other stuff. But at night, this is what I moonlight doing. Um, and this is what he's, Schnoller's been doing and Fred, Fred Buell has been doing as well. So uh, this is, you know, it's our passion. We really feel like something special can happen here. And uh, if we don't do it, I really don't know who else will. So that that kind of puts us in a weird situation as well. No, it's, it's fascinating to me. This is, I'm so happy we had, you had the time to do this with us. Um, and we will be linking to the article in the New York Times uh, that I spoke about earlier that got me into this, the conversation with Wales that James Nestor wrote on April 16th, linking to his book Deep, uh, as well as uh, we'll be linking that you can check out at www.darewin.org, darewin.org, to find out more about what all these folks are doing and, and what this research is about. It's just fascinating. You can watch the video as well on there um, uh, and, and just take listen to our broadcast today and I'll go suck the rest of it in. Uh, James Nestor, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a great conversation. Thanks a lot, Mark. Really appreciate it. We have to take a short break right here on Sound Bites. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll talk to students and teachers Douglas High School in Baltimore about an urban farming project they've created there. Welcome back. You're listening to Sound Bites, our weekly series on food, agriculture, the environment, and our future. Right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Two weeks ago, we discussed U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack's visit to Frederick Douglass High School here in Baltimore. He was there to see a new urban garden and discuss the role of urban agriculture in education. Last week, producer Stephanie Mavronis and I visited Douglas High School to talk to the two teachers who started the project, Miss Amanda Briotti and Mr. Chris Jennings. And we hear from four of the Douglas freshmen involved in the program, Leisha Howard, Dominic Scruggs, Nakara Williams, and Malik Smalls. We begin our visit inside the library at Douglas High. I'm just curious, is how many of you have ever even thought about farming before this happened? Well, in the eighth grade, I was in a little farming program, and it's like we was planting vegetables, flowers, and stuff, and we were selling them, tried them and stuff. It was fun. It was eighth grade, yeah. At my school, Reach Partnership. That, was that the first time we got into planting things and growing things? Yeah, it was, because I didn't know I was going to like it at first until I really got into it. It's fun to garden. How about anybody else? Everything about doing this stuff before? I did once. I was sort of like gardening with my mother, and like she got me into it. It was like, it was like she's always like, "Come on, you gonna help me guard? You gonna help me plant these vegetables and stuff? You're not gonna lay up in the bed all the time. You gonna help me do all this?" <laughs> so she got me into it, and once she got me into it, I started getting used to it. Both of you had your hands in the dirt and actually grown things before. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> I grew some tomatoes in my grandmother's house before. Well, let's start with the two of you then. So why did you, what got you into wanting to do this then? If it, I just liked the, the garden. I wanted to learn the beds, the gardening beds, and like more activities. That was a fun way for me. Well, what got me into it was the building. I like to build stuff. What did you build? The raised bed. Yeah, you put the dirt in it and stuff. They actually like built them with tools like with the wood the screws the nails the hammers the drills and then they filled it with dirt and then they planted in it <laughs> there's a lot of building involved 
So what is it about the idea of working like in a farm in a high school that you all want to continue you all want to continue with? What do you where do you expect us to go? Where do you expect us to take you? It's fun. I think it's taking us to like a whole nother level we never expected. Like it's teaching us how to grow our own food for real. So it's like it's nice to grow your own food and it's nice to know where your food is coming from on the spot. I say it's pretty good because like out of all the things that people see on TV, uh, you can learn how to um, plant like your own organic things. Like, like you can sort of plant your own stuff instead of like. But people sometimes people be like, "Oh, I don't. I'm going to plant my own garden because I don't want to go to the store and buy theirs because I don't know where theirs coming from." But basically, like if you plant your own stuff, that's sort of like you're actually realizing where it's actually coming from. All it is like it's just coming from out of the dirt. So that's where so like. That basically inspires me to do all, like, want to be a part of the garden. So you're all freshmen, right? So where do you, if you can imagine where this would take you over the next four years, I mean, how much of this kind of school life could be wrapped up in this? Where do you think this would take you? I think this would take me, like, to a higher place. Like, say say I want to, like, make my own show or something. Like, I got to deal with the endorsements and all the money I got to pay for the show. No, like, so I got, I'm going to have to, like, start selling stuff. Like, say I'm selling vegetables, fruit, and I make a whole <laughs> bunch of money off that so I, can, so I can make a show. I think it's going to take me in the next four years. It's like, by me doing this in the ninth grade, it's like my culture to do this. So I might want to be a farmer when I grow up, work at a farm, Show people my experience I had. Make somebody else want to be a farmer if they like it. Basically, the next four years, it'll take me to, like, a whole new level of knowing how to garden. Because I have cousins that enjoy playing in dirt. If they want to dig holes, I can give them reasons on wanting to dig them <laughs> holes. I mean, it helps me with, like, work experience. So when I want to be, like, an architect or something, to me, it's fun to plant because it's like it's something new I started, and once I started, I really liked it, and just thought like I like the farm. It's like I like it. That's what I want to do. Really, it it helped me express who I am. How would you imagine how the, how that farm y'all are working on? How that might change the school itself, or what you might end up studying? Let's say this the farm you had outside, right? You got to really sort of growing this food all year round and sort of working on it in school. How do you think it could change the nature of your, your, your work at school? I mean, how, how could it affect things, do you think? It would make stuff very different. Like, what? it would make stuff very different from the school. Like, raise more money for this school so the school can be better. More stuff in here so the students can learn more stuff that they didn't even know. So they could be smarter than they is now and better. Like, say they want to do hands-on stuff. And they come to the teacher at the end of the day and say, I, ver- I learned something very, very better than I knew now. And now I can do that better than I did, and I've done it. I think it's going to affect our school in a good way because by us doing it now, we can sell stuff, sell the vegetables, and raise money for that. And, like, later on in the year, they might want us have more gardens around the school. They might want to sell more, sell different kind of stuff that we'd be growing. By us doing that, we, it might get more kids drawn in to the agriculture farming. Some kids might want to farm, some kids might don't. But they might find it fun to farm. I think that it would give, like, it probably give us a good name. Like, instead of all those negative names that, we, that Douglas get, it give us a better name. And also the kids just, like, not really... Like don't want to be in part of like the other ramp things, for instance, like technology and stuff like that. If they want to do gardening, then they can do that more, and that'll probably like, if like they're learning about, they want to learn or do something with like, say about their future, like gardening and stuff like that, and they don't really know how to do it. If we have this for the school, then they'll probably want to do that, and they'll get to know it better, like we did. We're we're learning with them as to how our program can grow. Um, we're going to be hopefully 
incorporating like Nigeria and La Asia and Malik were all saying, um, different sides to agriculture that students might not necessarily and staff that might not necessarily have known about, like marketing and selling the vegetables, and just how to, um, how many job opportunities there are in urban agriculture. The secretary was explaining that. There were what was it, sixty thousand jobs in um, available, and only thirty thousand people are certified to fill those positions. So there's a lot of opportunity that students and staff might not necessarily know about urban agriculture that we're hoping to Miss Briody and I bring into the program here, so that it can grow and other people can be interested in it, um, and that it's not just getting your hands in the dirt and skipping out on class. <laughs> I think one thing that the kids were were highlighting that resonated with me was that one it allows you to learn in a different way like Malik was saying it's allowing him to learn in a more hands-on way and that's the way that he learns better and um, what Leasia and Nikira were saying is that it's providing students an opportunity to become interested in school and more invested in school like they want to be here because there's something like gardening that's going to keep them here and keep them invested and interested. They weren't interested in the other programs we have, but now they have this other option that's going to provide them more opportunities for their future. You want to you want to go see the garden? Yeah. Yeah. Want to show us the garden? All right. All right. So in front of us we have the fruit orchard that we planted. The kids planted. These the little trees we grew or we starting to grow. This was fun. Because we, it was like, y'all see how it was regular grass? We had to dig holes out so we could plant the trees and stuff. So it was fun doing that, putting the trees in, watering them, watching them grow. What kind of trees do you have up here? There's one tree I know, and it's that tree over there. That's a fig tree. Figs? Yeah, that's a fig tree over here. This one is a service berry, which I learned from... So these trees were all donated by the Tree Baltimore and then the Baltimore Orchard Project. They were donated. There's nine trees, and the kids planted all of them. And I learned from the guy that a service berry... Do you know why they're called service berries? Because back in the day, in like colonial times, whenever they started to flower was when the ministers were able to come back and start church service. Yeah, So, but they're edible. Those are the trees that will probably get to eat berries off of this year. The others, it'll be a few years before they fruit. you're going to have an apple. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Or a pear, right? <laughs> that's kind of cool. These two trees are right here, uh, pear trees. These are apple trees that were growing as well. That's the, the one. Oh, the, the persimmon trees. Those are persimmon, persimmon. trees. So what did, what, did you, what did you have to do here to make this happen? We dug holes with shovels and we had to make sure the hole was wide enough for the tree and we started planting and we had to spread the roots to make sure it grow right. Is there anything about planting the trees that surprised you? Like what you see trees around but did you know that it took so much work to plant each tree? Well I I, I know it was this hard to plant a tree and me walking around looking at other trees, like it really takes years and years for a big tree to grow. To see how big a tree can grow and how long the roots get. Right, it's like it's not the fact that on how hard it was, it's the fact that how long it takes. Because, like, usually, like, in order for you to plant this kind of stuff, you have to have patience for it to grow. If not, then you won't be growing. You'll just end up getting upset with it. <laughs> and over here are the beds? Yeah. The, one, the things you built, right? Yeah. <laughs> so did you have any idea what you were actually doing when you started building them? Yeah. Just put the letters together, then put the right screws together, and there you go. That's it? Yeah. So you like building things? Yeah. You always like doing that? Nope. I like... I like building stuff ever since I started playing Minecraft. Cool. So what do we got here? Spinach. Spinach here. Lettuce. And collard greens. Mm, we got cabbage here. And some of them over there is like... Over here. 
Over here is tomatoes. Over here we have squash. How do they look since when you planted them? So, when we first planted them, they were smaller than this now. So we can tell we did it right because it's growing and we see process of how it is. We just got to wait to eat it. <laughs> Do you know when they'll be ready to eat? Like what month or what season? Hopefully before we graduate. Oh, yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, they should be ready. Um, tomatoes should be ready in July. Yeah. So we've been working with, since our, our last meeting, our radio interview, we've been working with uh, the principal to create some jobs for the kids for the summer. Uh-huh. How's um, that coming? Good, good. It's going good. So we actually had a meeting with a group of, we, not, we don't have 15 anymore, we have 25 kids now. And we had a meeting with them on Tuesday, and they all filled out job applications. And next week we're, uh, we're interviewing because we're going to uh, place 10 of the students here. And then we also have a few opportunities at other farms. So other students, we're going to help them apply to real food farms. And then there's another... There's Parks and People Parks and Branches people. program that the students can work with um, through YouthWorks. And their job is um, a lot of landscaping um, responsibilities, um, cleaning up the city, and more tree planting. So, we well, we can help the, of besides the ones that we pick, we can help the other kids apply to those. And those people have reached out to us saying, "Send us your students." Because you know, if you if you do that, I was thinking this. It, I mean, some of the almost some of the community and, and black-owned farms in town might be good for the kids to really be part of, like over yeah. Heber Brown's place and Park Heights. How yeah. so, we work with the if, if if like you worked with the blues, you would learn so much by the end of the summer. Yeah. These, these, they know more about farming than anybody I know. I mean, you, I mean, and putting them down with folks who are like really trying to build a grassroots movement, no yeah. pun intended. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I mean, that might be cool for them to do. Yeah. This one, this kale right here, kale, tomatoes, cucumbers, and I think there's cauliflower in it. I don't know for sure. When I was in the eighth grade, we didn't have that much to plant. Like, we planted basic stuff like tomatoes and stuff like that. But now I can I can see that it's not only tomatoes you can grow. You can grow any other stuff. I guess what I say, it also surprised me that they let us plant at this school. So, because, like... A lot of things, like some people say they're going to let us do this, they're going to let us do that, but then there's always that one particular person that always just ruins it for everyone. So it basically surprised me that when they said they were going to let us do it, we were actually able to do it. Did you learn anything in the process of planting the stuff and helping build the beds? I learned how to, how to put the soil, put the soil after the dirt, then you got to put some more dirt on top and keep piling it. And spreading it, and um, how to how to um, how wide to make the hole so you can put the plant in there, and how to how to plant a tree. What surprised me about this is that it's a garden in this place. I mean, you got weeds everywhere. Well, and when in the summer, the soil about as hard as the concrete. Well, for anybody that's out here listening, y'all should try to grow a garden in your community and see how y'all like it. Like, y'all can grow vegetables and fruits and sell them in your community and give them to the homeless and see how it works. And we, we're working also on um, setting up a urban agriculture class starting in the fall. We've got them placed in a cohort in the schedule, and so now we just have to like build the the curriculum about what they'll be learning about and bringing in experts and things like that. And we hope to do that over the summer. Like even if they're working here at the school, we hope that we could contact other farms like the Blues, Real Food Farms, and have kids go over there and see what's going on and learn more from other people. Because Mr. Jennings and I are are also learning along with the kids. <laughs> We at least had like one sheep in there, one sheep. One sheep? 
yeah, one sheep. But you know, you know, you can in a city, you can raise chickens. Mm-hmm. You can, if you built, you could build a coop mm-hmm. over here. I know somebody you, around my way that raised chickens. Right. See, you can't have roosters in the city, but you can have chickens, right. which means you can raise them. We could all have eggs, whatever else you want. But I mean, but you could do that. You can have chickens here. Good idea. <laughs> And shout out to Frederick Douglass for building a garden. That's nice. (laughs) So if y'all want to, y'all can stop by and see. In July, stop by and see what we're growing. Come purchase one and tell us how it is. (laughs) I just want to say shout out to my mom for like, (laughs) well, without her, I probably wouldn't even want to be a part of the gardening thing. So shout out to her for making me come outside and help garden. So shout out to Reach Partnership for getting me started on this curriculum. And shout out to my aunt that kept pushing me to do stuff when I really didn't want to. And shout out to her for getting in me garden. I just want to say also shout out to the people, well, the other people who didn't try to dig up our plants from out of our garden. <laughs> I want to say shout out to my mother because I love her and I'm on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say shout out to Mr. Jennings and Miss Briody for helping us start this and having a garden. Because I ask Mr. Jennings every day, when is we going to get this garden started? Every day, when is we going to get it started? And I'm happy we started it already. And shout out to you guys for helping us out. We've been trying to get this started and we couldn't do it without you either. So we appreciate you all. Well, thank you all for letting us come by today. comments about what you heard today and want to talk or want to connect with the teachers involved in the Urban Gardening Project at Douglas, send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast Mark Steiner Show. Share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. (laughs) 